Welcome to ISA's ARB Reviews podcast, a series bringing you conversations with researchers and tree care experts about current issues in arboriculture. I'm Philip Van Wassner, your host on this episode of ARB Reviews. I'm joined now by Jim Chatfield. Jim is an Associate Professor and Extension Specialist for Ohio State University Extension. He earned his Master's Degree in Plant Pathology from Ohio State University and is currently the President of the International Ornamental Crabapple Society. Today we'll be talking about why trees are so difficult to manage and specifically about infectious diseases of, of trees. So hello Jim, um, it's a pleasure Thank to you. have you here and uh, I'm, I'm from Toronto so it's so nice to, to see all these people coming to, to my fair city and um, as we mentioned we're going to talk about infectious diseases. So the first question that I had for you is how how would you describe infectious tree diseases differing from insect infestations or non-infectious tree diseases? Well, thanks, and it really is wonderful to be here in Canada and in Toronto, a beautiful, beautiful area. Diseases are, uh, are an interesting uh, issue and problem, and I've noted over the years in working with arborists, landscapers, nurserymen, there's always an element that is uh, that we have to really work on to define the difference with insects. For example, the idea with plant diseases, infectious plant diseases, most commonly with a fungal plant pathogen, is that that pathogen infects the tissue of the plant. It's an actual host-parasite relationship. So you, first of all, you have a microscopic organism that arrives on that plant and it invisibly to our naked eye causes an infection so you don't see it, but also the fact that it is establishing a relationship and enzymatically breaking down constituents of the plant cell. So you never see it arrive. And so you can't, uh, you know, one of the things that we, we love about uh, insect problems is that if you have enough data in an integrated pest management situation, you can say, well, until it's built up to this number of population, then the treatment or whatever we're doing is not worth doing because it's not causing significant damage. Well, that doesn't really work with plant diseases because you never see the pathogen arrive. You never see it uh, germinate, you never see it penetrate into the tissue unless you're looking through a microscope, and so then it establishes this host-parasite relationship inside the plant, and basically once that's happened, you're not getting rid of it. So uh, you don't know it's there, you don't know it's infected, you don't know that symptoms are going to come later, and that's another piece of the puzzle, this latent infection. You don't know, you're not going to know that it's happened even though everything looks fine, and so you have to prevent it from getting in, basically. So what would you, if you could just for the audience talk about maybe some of the different kinds of infectious tree diseases that, that we might see or that we have seen? Well, the classic infectious tree disease that an arborist is very aware of, which really was the, a major impetus for the development of, of, of vigorous urban forestry programs, uh, certainly in the United States and Canada as well, was Dutch elm disease. So Dutch elm disease is a, a very important disease, an infectious disease of trees, uh, and really many people will say that urban forestry in North America really got its impetus for funding and getting started because of Dutch elm disease, because people had these wonderful elm-lined streets which were basically wiped out by this disease. And so people said, hmm, this was a bad thing. I mean, we've got all this uh, uh, shade that we used to have in this wonderful, lovely area, and now it's, you know, barren to the sun. And so, boy, it must be important to take care of trees. And so even though it was a very terrible thing, losing all those elms, 
it really got people to realize the importance of trees. So it was an interesting disease and gives a good, good example of how infectious disease can be difficult to control because there is a complex to it. So the uh, European elm bark beetle uh, and then our native uh, bark beetles are insects which transmit the fungal pathogen, the invisible, microscopic invisible, a fungal pathogen that then is delivered by the insect to the tree when they feed on the upper portions of the branches and then the uh, fungus was inside the bark and then moves and courses through the vascular system of the plant spreading throughout the plant causing a vascular disease which means that the fungus is plugging up that conducting system of the plant that obviously the plant needs to have to survive. Uh, the xylem bringing water and minerals up to the top of the plant, the phloem taking food produced in the leaves down to the bottom of the plant and throughout the plant. So you plug up that system and of course you get branch dieback and eventually tree death. So uh, Dutch elm disease is a classic example. So when you think about control approaches, you control the insect that's bringing the pathogen. The pathogen's causing the problem. The, the insect in that case is doing minor feeding. The issue is the insect is delivering the fungus to the vascular system of the plant which then plugs that up and so, you know, do you control the insect? Do you control the fungus with a fungicide? But that's difficult to get it into the tree. But if you can get a systemic movement of material in there, there's some help with that. But it's very difficult to effectively do that, especially if the fungus is really well established inside the tree. Or do you control the uh, disease from a really broad-based, long-term urban forestry perspective, such as don't plant monocultures of elms? You know, you'd think we learned that lesson back in the 40s and 50s and 60s. We haven't learned that lesson, as we've noticed with, inf uh, with other kinds of problems, with both insect problems and disease problems. We still have situations when we get a new pest, uh, be it an insect or a disease, where we have a fungal pathogen or a bacterial pathogen. We're still discovering that we oftentimes don't have enough diversity in our urban forestry planting so that, you know, if something comes to cause major problems on a on a tree, it's not wiping out everything. Absolutely, and classically, we're seeing that uh, here in Europe. You're not too far away, so EAV is, is the right. current um, crisis amongst our, our urban forests, but what we see here is that many of the streets that were elm-lined became ash-lined uh, afterwards by monoculture, and now it's the second wave of disappearing urban forests, so. Yeah, and as a, as a an extension specialist, a person that's all about outreach and, and getting information to people. I mean, in some ways, you know, we can't control the world, but uh, we'd have to consider it in a way a massive failure of communications because, again, that should have been a major lesson. Don't do this. But, of course, people love the, the vase-like shape of American elms and the archways that that produced in streets. And to be honest with you, as you look at Emerald Ash Borer in an area like Toledo you know, in Ohio, uh, you know, ashes kind of do that. They're not like an elm, but, you know, when you had a street with ashes lining both sides, it gave that same sense. And so it's understandable that people wanted to recreate that which they had. And that's a big thing about trees and our connection to trees. But we all collectively uh, simply didn't do a good enough job in terms of planning. And it's a, it's a, it's a problem of, of human beings. We're much better at trying to come up with cures than really doing prevention. And, that, and plant selection proper plant selection, uh, uh, selecting plants not only to not have monocultures but also ones which have good disease resistance or pest resistance as well. That kind of forward thinking is hard to come by sometimes uh, and then we try to deal with the problem afterwards. We do the same thing with our physicians of course. 
Absolutely. Well, we see, you know, I'm, I've been uh, quite involved with Dutch elm disease myself over the years, and one of the issues, and you would see this in the States as well, is that when you get to the Midwest and the prairies, elm was one of the only species, uh, one of a very small palette of species that you could choose that would uh, grow in those, in those harsh environments. And when we get up into Canada, the winters are really severe. And, and what we see now on the prairies is that, you know, the, after elm, the most popular species is ash right. uh, because they'll also grow under those conditions. So right. those communities are very concerned now that they not only have Dutch elm disease, they have emerald ash borer on the way. Um, these are big problems. But I wanted to ask you another question. Now, you've spoken about um, the way that infection diseases get into trees and can affect trees. Uh, do they act differently, different ones? Is there different severities? Can trees tolerate some infectious diseases for a period of time more than others? Certainly. I mean, this is, uh, you know, we're talking about biology here, so we're talking about living organisms. One of the things uh, that we, I was talking about yesterday at a workshop here at ISA is the issue of uh, what kind of uh, plant pathogen we're talking about. First of all, you have fungi, bacteria, you have viruses, you have tiny little cell wallless organ, uh, organisms called phytoplasmas. We, we call nematodes plant pathogens, and those not usually on trees except with pine wood nematode. But there are a lot of different kinds of pathogens. And then, of course, within those groups, there are very different types of organisms. So uh, one of the things that we talk about is the fact that, you know, you have a scale. It's kind of a sliding scale. It's not absolute, but all, all these uh, pathogens can be on somewhere on the scale of saprophytism to parasitism. So a saprophyte is an organism that breaks down already dead organic matter. So you think about uh, some of the fungi in the woods that are breaking down that, or those fallen trees. We need them. We'd be buried very quickly on Earth if we didn't have things that broke down dead organic matter. And they shouldn't be described as pathogens. They're not, if they're, if they're completely saprophytes. On the other end of that scale would be something that is completely a parasite. It can't live on anything except living organic matter. And they're very, very difficult sometimes to deal with in a laboratory setting as a plant pathologist. You can't grow them except in an artificial medium. Figuring out how to even do that is very difficult. And so, you, and you have to have cell culture. You have to have it on something that is living. So that's very difficult. So you have this broad range of total saprophytism to total parasitism. But the reality of it is most plant pathogens are somewhere in the middle. And so we have things we call opportunistic pathogens, which are very good saprophytes, but are also parasitic to some extent on living tissue, especially if that living tissue is stressed. So the energy in that cell is being used for a lot of other reasons, or there wasn't enough energy produced with a good year of photosynthesis. And so now the plant is not as good at resisting. And so then these opportunistic pathogens can attack stress tissue. And so there are a lot of pathogens we call opportunistic, and then there are others that are really good pathogens. Uh, again, yesterday in our workshop, somebody was asking, well, how do we know which one is which? And of course, that's, that's the million-dollar question. And it's very, very difficult. And we're not trying to hold all that information and so we'll be the only specialist that know. But it really depends on a lot of factors. It depends on the host plant and what its level of resistance is. It depends on the particular pathogen, its level of virulence, on how much of a good parasite it is only living on healthy tissue. And then all the things. I always like to say that a tree is the repository of its entire history, its entire natural history. Sometimes something will finish it off because it's been predisposed by 
drought, predisposed by gypsy moth feeding, predisposed by other things, and then a pathogen finishes it off versus sometimes you have a very virulent pathogen that causes problems. One of the things that we really have been trying to stress recently is helping us all understand the issue of natural selection pressures. If you think, and I'm going to bring in insects and diseases here, and I'll try to make it a little briefer here, but if you think about emerald ash borer, and again, we're not talking about a disease here, but what's the problem on North American ashes? The problem is our North American ashes had never faced this test. If you look at, at Asian ashes, they've been around it for presumably millions of years, and so the Asian ashes have greater resistance because natural selection over time, the ones that have a little bit of an edge are going to survive better until eventually it's a minor pest. But then you expose that pest as it comes over to the U.S. to a new host, which has not gone through the cauldron of natural selection for thousands, millions, tens of millions of years, and they're highly susceptible. So in that early stage, and that's the stage that human beings are in, you know, right. 100 years, 1,000 years, I mean, that seems like forever to us. Yeah. Then that pest, and the same thing is true with diseases. In our words, our American elms, had never faced the fungus that causes Dutch elm disease. Now, if you took the, uh, the Asian elms, you know, the, the lace bark elm, which had been around the Dutch elm disease fungus for millennia, not a big deal, hardly a host at all. But our American elms were. So that's, you know, one of the things that's important to understand is you get, end up, especially with invasive species, we have thousand canker disease now coming in on black walnut. They, those plants that we're talking about, it, you know, it, it's, it's a native problem on Arizona walnut out west. It causes twig dieback. Who cares? Right. Not a big deal, but black walnut is a different host. So it's that interaction between the host plant, the pathogen, the health of that host plant, the genetic susceptibility, all those genes for resistance that can be very specific. All of that comes together and uh, means that sometimes we have pathogens and diseases that are big deals versus background. And there's lots of background. One of the, the diseases that uh, Wayne Sinclair, who's a pathologist at Cornell University, always used to say, and it was such a ringing, ringing thing, he says, tar spot of maple is one of the most spectacular and least important diseases of maple. So it's spectacular, these tarry spots, oh my goodness, well, the world is coming to an end, is it going to spread to other things? fact of the matter, it doesn't spread except to a few species of maple, and it's not a killer. It comes in late in the season. Host range is critical understanding that a particular pathogen causes problems on only a certain range. Some are really what we call cosmopolitan pathogens. They get on a lot of stuff. Some of them are highly specific. Most of them are highly specific. All of our anthracnose diseases tend to be on one host. So anthracnose of oak is different than the fungus that causes anthracnose of dogwood. It's different than the one that causes anthracnose of walnut. Same thing with powdery mildew disease. Now again, there are some that have broader host range, but understanding that host range is critical for an arborist, it's critical for the public, and a big piece of the puzzle of what's going on biologically. So you just touched on, on critical for an arborist. What, what can uh, an arborist do potentially to identify an infectious disease on the plant? Well, in terms of identifying an infectious disease, I mean, it's really critical to use all the resources at your command. I mean, I think the one thing I would say first off is the most critical resource for an arborist is fellow arborist. I mean, I'm from an educational institution, but it really starts with the accumulated knowledge of people that have been working on these things for a long time. It is always remarkable. I mean, I look at the 100 people in the audience yesterday. Probably yesterday in this diagnostic workshop that we did, there was more expertise on tree diseases and diagnosing tree problems in one 
room or one location than anywhere else in the world at that given moment. I mean, you had a hundred arborists and a few educators in there, but we were all educators. We were all sharing things. I mean, that expertise that you have from years of, of dealing with the problems, learning about the problems, interfacing with all your partners, that's a lot of power. And a hundred of them in one place, that's pretty awesome. So their own expertise. Obviously, there are wonderful resources. Uh, you know, the Ministry of Agriculture here in Canada, the uh, the land-grant university system in the United States. So there's people that specialize on specific things because, you know, an arborist generally is not going to focus just on, on tree diseases or tree insects or anything. Specifically, they're dealing with the whole holistic aspect of arboriculture. So, you know, you bring in experts and so you do educational programs. Very critical to have things like the ISA uh, programs for working with educational components. You interface with experts and university people that do research to nail down the specifics of some of these kinds of things. A lot of good resources on the web, a lot of good resources in terms of books that you use. So it's, uh, it's, it, it really is utilizing all those resources that are available. I mean, we obviously have all the libraries of the world and our cell phone right now. So there's lots of good information. There's lots of contact with specific questions to individual people, though, that is quite necessary in that puzzle. But it really, in a lot of ways, all starts with the kind of accumulated information that an arborist has in their own company and then spreading that broad, more broadly to their organizations that they work with where they're bringing lots of arborists together and, and the continuing education that goes on and, uh, and, you know, but the driving force of trying to solve problems. So I have sort of two related questions. Um, the, the point, uh, one, of the, one of the thrusts of these interviews is to allow for us to talk with experts like you that are coming to the conference, but we also are trying to convey this down to the arborists uh, who have to go out and, and look at the trees. So um, what would you say would be some things that arborists can do to prevent trees from being affected or infected? Well, num yeah, number one, I think, is uh, to recognize that it all begins in the beginning. So uh, it really is important for arborists to talk to people about and to, to inculcate into all their connections. I mean, if you're a municipal arborist, to somehow make the point with people that are making decisions about tree purchases and use on a street that, okay, yes, there's pressure that people, I, we would like to have our streets lined with a particular tree, really get this issue of diversity into the game. So they really have to interact with their multiple publics and decision makers. There's a, a, a rule of thumb, which is just a rule of thumb, that you shouldn't plant more than 10% of one species and 20% of one genus, a genus being a group of related species, or 30% of a plant family, which would be a family of the group related genera, so on down, so it's in, in, a, in, a, in a city forest. Well, it should be even less than that for all those. I mean, even 10, 20, 30 rule is just something that Frank Santamore kind of said, okay, here it is, but you know, we all know that it'd be better if it was even more diversity. So. You have to get people to function relative to that initial thing instead of trying to deal with Dutch elm disease in the end by, you know, removals or let's see if we, there's a situation here where we may be able to inject a fungicide into the tree or let's control the insects with a massive insecticide program so they won't vector the pathogen or let's do all this stuff, firewood rules and everything. You know, that's all after the fact. Let's try to get people to try not to do the uh, the monoculture. So number one, it's plant selection in the very beginning. It's probably the most important thing, not only just disease resistance specifically, you know, plant a crab apple that doesn't get apple scab, but also very importantly, 
let's have just genetic diversity if we have a new pest that comes in. Number two, I think, is uh, you know really being good at diagnostics. What is actually going on? You know, uh, we have a saying that obviously physicians use, and we use it for our boriculture too. Alan Seward of the Ohio Department of Natural Resources came up with this: treatment without diagnosis is malpractice. Well, you know, I mean, that's a little harsh in the overall world. I mean, even our physicians, I mean, sometimes their diagnosis isn't 100%, but yet they still go ahead and say, well, you know, everybody's got this kind of problem right now. Use this. But ultimately, the idea is really important. Don't go off and say, let's do this treatment without making sure that you know as well as you can, and that's why we do diagnostic workshops, what it is you're dealing with. So then you're specifically trying to deal with what the problem is. You know, thirdly, there are a lot of arboricultural practices that are general that are really important. Pruning is critical, so pruning to remove dead and diseased tissue. Sometimes that controls the problem. I mean, we had a really classic case of a tree form, not a shrub, but a tree form uh, viburnum the other day. And one of the diseases is a disease called Botrysphaeria canker, and the fungus comes in on the plant, in, on the stems. And if you prune that out well below the area of infection, you've removed the disease problem, and that's good. Uh, but if it's verticillium wilt, which is a, another fungal pathogen that's a vascular wilt, the fungus moves through the roots and up into the conducting system, well, you can't just cut off a branch and that's the end of it. It's in the roots of the plant. So diagnosis, understanding what your treatment options are, uh, is critical. Now, having said all that, I mean, there's obviously fungicides in particular situations before the fungus gets into the plant. Uh, there's practices such as pruning, which can help with diseases like fire blight and botrysphaeria canker. Uh, there's, you know, better plant selection. There's sanitation. I mean, that really came into play with that challenge disease, you know, remove logs that are infested with the beetles and all those kinds of things. But I have to be honest with you, in a lot of cases with plant diseases, especially these ones where you have opportunistic pathogens, they are coming in to that plant once there have been two or three strikes already against them. Maybe they fouled off a few pitches, but there have been multiple strikes that have occurred with those plants. And oftentimes the most important thing that an arborist can communicate and actually end up doing is say, look, this tree is not getting better. We don't have any magic potions. We don't have any, I call it chicken soup for the soil. We don't have some, we're gonna throw this in here and everything changes now. It's time to say, okay, this tree is, is here. We love this tree. It's producing wonderful environmental services. But at some point, you've got to make the decision for a removal, certainly if it's a hazard tree. And at other points, you have to just look at that tree and, and honestly determine when it is horticulturally dead, when it is not producing a service that is useful to anybody anymore, and recognizing that, look, plant another tree. You know, we always say, you know, the old Chinese proverb, the best time to plant a tree is right now or it's 20 years ago, the second best tree time is right now. So, you know, if you see that you have trees and can honestly assess this is going out, you know, plant some other trees that'll be up to a decent size by the time you have to remove the other one. But, you know, as arborists, it's crucial. I mean, it's an ethical issue associated with identifying hazard trees that potentially can be the thing that as arborists, when people that love trees never want to be, is look at tree as a negative, but they can be a negative if we, if we ignore their potential hazard nature. So I think a, a critical thing is deciding when we can't do anything and not pretending that we can. I always say that arborists have one of the most difficult jobs in horticulture. And the reason that it's more difficult than, say, being a nursery grower or a landscaper is we're dealing with, with perennial plants of extreme emotional importance to people. 
arborists. And so one of the things that arborists get put into the position of constantly is do something. And there may be a situation where there is nothing to do, but somebody wants something done. And, you know, at some point, and there's all things along the spectrum here, an arborist has a certain amount, I mean, they have integrity. They don't want to do something that is useless. They, they, they don't really want to do something that maybe has a very tiny possibility of affecting any good change. But on the other hand, at some point, somewhere on that spectrum, you got a lot of pressure of, well, if you won't help me, I'll find somebody who does. So that's a pressure on arborists that is difficult. And diseases really come into play. There are situations where it's too late to do anything specific and you can't have a big canker, hypoxylon canker problem on a, on a tree and it's declining and you've got a branch dieback and small leaves and things have moved well into the case of it's almost getting to the hazard tree and say, okay, we're going to do something now. We're going to solve this problem now. It just doesn't work that way. So those decision-making and expert people need to understand, pay for consulting arborists, pay for people who assess this is, this shall not pass muster. This is now a hazard tree. So, Well, very good, Jim. I guess I make one thing I always, my, I have a perspective. I, I really like old trees, so mm -hmm. I sure. might temper uh, the the movement to removal with uh, at that point think is there other habitat uh, yeah. values etc exactly. to a dead or dying tree if we remove all the dying trees from the landscape then there's a whole host of other organisms that benefit from those trees oh, being around um, just as a last thought so um, this has been excellent Jim I think you've given us a lot of information about what they are and, and what arborists might be able to do and and I thank you for your your extension role is, uh, sure. as an educator because um, it has um, come up in many of the interviews that we do that you know the communication with the public and with the arborist communications is everything so great you've communicated excellently all right I thank appreciate you. the opportunity thanks